Carrier Supporting Carrier with Nicholas Russo, Episode 5. Welcome back, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, for another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm Michael Ziga, also known as Zig, and I am your host. We have an awesome show for you today, fully packed with a ton of technology, business requirements, constraints, and drivers. I am extremely excited for today's episode as we have our first guest expert joining us, my good friend, Nick Russo. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for joining the show. Hey Mike, I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, for those who don't know me, my name is Nick. I'm uh, an NCE at Cisco, work in the uh, U.S. federal space, and today we're going to talk through carrier supporting carrier and specifically how we took an instance of that design, applied it uh, to a specific organization to meet a lot of their fairly challenging uh, business requirements. Outstanding, and thanks for joining, Nick. At a high level, we mentioned carrier supporting carrier. Is there anything else we would like to mention to set the stage for this technology solution that we're going to discuss? Um, yeah, so I think we'll take a step back and say, what's the problem we're trying to solve with something like carrier supporting carrier? And at a really high level, it's a way of abstracting out your core transport to someone else who has it. So suppose, you know, even for those who don't work in the service provider space, suppose you had a, a site on the East Coast and a site on the West Coast. And those two sites were points of presence or POPs that were servicing customers that you had. And you simply don't have a national infrastructure to connect those sites. Well, there's a, a couple ways you can go about that. You can buy it from someone else. You can buy transit bandwidth and, and all kinds of things like that. But a carrier supporting carrier, the specific uh, use case of that is when you need kind of end-to-end multi-tenancy using MPLS VPNs or something to that extent, whereby your core carrier is a larger provider that has that national infrastructure and you're effectively just going to exchange routing with them, that person or, or that technology is going to enable end-to-end label switch paths, whereby then you can build your, your overlays on top of that for whatever MPLS services you want to offer between those two POPs. Uh, and you know the nice thing about carrier supporting carrier, it's effectively a layer three VPN just with an additional level of hierarchy and MPLS exchange from the provider edge to the customer edge. So effectively from your POP to the national carrier. Um, I'll also say that you know, this is not something that you really see in real life too often, and there's a number of reasons for that. Some people, I think, view it as being kind of overly complicated and just not something that happens often. Uh, typically, a lot of large carriers will have their own bandwidths and things like that. But as I said earlier, when you're trying to outsource that to someone else, either because you don't have it or for cost reasons, uh, it can be a, a really strong design. And in our particular environment um, where I work, our specific uh, program office, we don't have any kind of global or national infrastructure at all. We just have POPs scattered around the world. And those individual POPs have a certain capability, um, but connecting them together provided additional capabilities, especially when it came to connecting customers that were geographically dispersed, as well as a number of other use cases. So Carrier Supporting Carrier was a, was a great technology for that, and uh, it's been deployed about five months now. It's been working uh, very well, and I'd like to talk today about uh, that design and, and how we built it. Outstanding, yeah. So I've never seen Carrier Supporting Carrier personally in a production environment, so um, today's going to be a pretty big learning curve for me too um, and, and kind of really the business requirements around that um, and the decisions that you went through with the organization that you support. Going down that path, um, what are the high-level business requirements constraints that, that you kind of had going through this design decision and choice? Yeah, so I'll, I'll list a few of them. So these were kind of the, the big business drivers that when we went into this, we all kind of agreed that we can't really violate these things. 
First one was multi-tenancy over WAN. I think that was one of the first things I mentioned. So we have multiple customers that connect into these POPs. We have a strict requirement to keep those customer networks separate, uh, both from a security perspective and also from an overlapping IP address perspective. So it kind of lends itself naturally to an MPLS-based solution right off the bat. Um, To talk a little bit, I know there's some people out there who are thinking, oh, why don't you just use some kind of IP encapsulation like GRE and IPsec. Those are all pretty reasonable options as well. Um, I'll talk a Hopefully, as we go through this, you'll start to understand why those uh, were, were inferior options for this particular design. Uh, unicast, the next, the next driver, uh, we definitely need unicast and also potentially high bandwidth multicast flows. So this is where solutions like DMVPN tend to be a little bit difficult because, you know, we don't have uh, our layout wasn't necessarily hub spoke. You know, we had uh, probably 25, 30 pops in the world. It was really hard to kind of pinpoint a couple of them and call them hubs. We didn't really have a, a really strong north-south flow. And especially with the high bandwidth multicast requirement, DMVPN was was not looking like a great option or think or hub spoke GRE type solutions like it. Uh, another big one was rapid provisioning. Um, and and the, what I want you to think about with rapid provisioning means you have a guy sits down at a chair and the clock starts. That, that person has 10 minutes to find the devices on his uh, NetOps map, effectively navigate, find the devices that need to be configured for a specific circuit order, log into the devices, configure the VPN, verify it, test connectivity, log out, save his config, and log out all the devices. And right now that's a manual process and there are some uh, automated uh, future stuff that we're working on, but for now that's what it is. And our target is 10 minutes or less. You're making that target? Yeah, we're, we, we made that target. At, well, not me, but yeah, our, uh, our leadership kind of made that target because part of the reason is the people who run our network, and this is maybe true for real ISPs, is that, um, they're not necessarily well-trained, and, and that's not a ding on my customer or anyone else. It's just kind of the reality of the situation is that um, the people who use this technology, they might have a basic understanding of um, you know import and exporting route targets and, and things like that, but understanding all the core transport and all that stuff in the middle, they're not really able to understand that. And when you start to say things like, oh, you need to do a GRE tunnel from here to here, you got to specify the source and destination, you need to apply this IPsec profile, then you need to run routing in it, that can become really involved. And it takes a lot of time. Um, there's a lot of things to configure and a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, so the, the the nice thing about MPLS VPNs for people who have used them in production, you, you play around with route targets at the edge and you're done. Build whatever topology you want with a few commands when you do it wrong, you know it's wrong because it just doesn't work and you can, you're can you only looking at a, a few lines of configuration and it's, it's relatively straightforward to troubleshoot. So we felt like that was a good way to both rapidly provision something, rapidly repair and troubleshoot it as well. So that was a, a pretty uh, strong requirement for us. And the last one was being vendor agnostic. Um, and Cisco specifically, they came out with a really great feature. It's called uh, MPLS VPN over MGRE, where you can basically look at the IBGP next top for VPN routes and automatically encapsulate it in a GRE tunnel that isn't configured. It's really awesome, but it only works in Cisco IOS XE, like ASR 1000s and things like that. It's not supported on Cisco IOS XR. It's not typically supported on other vendors. So solutions like that were kind of out the window. Um, and also there's not support for layer two VPN services. And uh, I, I didn't specify that here in the drivers, but uh, both layer two point to point and layer three uh, point to multi-point VPNs are required. So there's not any kind of VPLS type eVPN. We didn't need any of that, but there were some cases where we needed point to point pseudo wire support um, and uh, care supporting carrier. Again, it only outsources your transport. There's no limit on what kind of MPLS services you can offer at the edge. So pseudo wire with CSC in the core is absolutely legitimate. So that we felt like, you know, uh, without, without talking too much about the solution, those were kind of our high level drivers, Mike. 
Wow, that's outstanding. That's a lot of uh, drivers to come up with a solution for. Was there any um, CapEx and OpEx requirements? Yeah, that's a great question too. So, you know, we, we were pretty heavily constrained. So these these drivers kind of gave us a vision. And what are the solutions that can give us multi-tenancy over WAN with good performance for unicast and multicast and, and blah, blah, blah. But what are the things that we can't do? Um, so, or I, or I should say, maybe what are some of the, you know, as we drill down deeper, what are the things? And we kind of came up with, Kind of our motto is our three S's, and they're they are important in this order: simple, secure, scalable. Okay, so simple was number one. Just like I talked about that ten-minute target, it has to be easy to use and easy to understand. We don't want to deploy technology just to deploy technology. We need to meet the business need first. And it, quite frankly, if a high school graduate cannot operate this network, it will fail. Next one was security, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about security later, but. I just want to kind of flush everyone's mind from traditional security. This network does, is not carpet bound with firewalls or IPSs or, you know, things like that. Um, when I talk about security in this context, I'm mostly talking about being intelligent with your routing, using multi-tenancy as a security tool, using abstraction as a security tool and things like that. Uh, and then scalability, um, even though we only have 25 or 30 pops, growth could be up to 200 to 300 pops in the next three years. So we kind of had to keep that in mind is as we roll out these sites, we need a kind of a turnkey operation to be able to grow the network without having to constantly make changes to what the network design looks like. So that's going to have some pretty significant impacts on our routing design, uh, the protocols we use, how we use them. Uh, after those kind of first three core things, we had some other kind of some issues, not issues, but other things to consider. So manageability was another big one that kind of plays into um, that kind of plays into the simple aspect of it. I think I don't think anyone builds a network and says, ah, this doesn't need to be manageable. Of course it does. But manageability um, has to be kind of from perspective of I, I need to be able to look at a map and get a good view of the network. And in my opinion, there is a such thing as as polluting that. You know, who's ever seen an SNMP map where every single link on every single switch was being individually monitored? And then when sometimes you look at it, it's just a jungle. And you're not you lose that you lose the high level picture of the, the health of the network because you've got simply too much detail. So we had to kind of find that middle ground is how do we test the health of our links and nodes without confusing ourselves. So we had to kind of uh, constrain our constrain our ambitions when it came to network operations on that. Uh, you asked specifically about capex and opex. Capex needed to be extremely low. There was literally no budget for this project. When we started it, we said, what do we have in there, and can we just connect things up together? and make it work with what we have. And that's usually the wrong way to start building a new network. But we had a bunch of brownfield pops, and there was a carrier that was available. And you guys aren't going to believe this, but the carrier is actually free, so there's no OPEX associated with the CSC. Um, and we just figured, well, if we can just run a kind of a short-haul last-mile link from our customer edge in the pop to their provider edge in their pop, then this could conceivably be a very low-cost solution. So extremely low CapEx. I think in total, since we started this project, we got probably about $50,000 in the past year in CapEx, so very low. Um, for OpEx, right now it's very low because we don't have enough money to pay people to run the network. The NetOps net team right now is three people. It's very difficult. Uh, even though well, the network is made simple, but uh, three people, it's hard to do anything with three people. Um, OpEx can increase over time, though. So as this network grows and as we add more pops and as we start to get more customers, we're going to be able to, to basically increase our headcount. So keeping that in mind is that we really can't buy hardware now, but we can increase our footprint later. If we build our network thinking that we know it's going to grow, 
We know we're going to get people and we know we need a good management solution that people can fall in on and immediately be productive. Then we, then we would consider that excess from a manageability and the simplicity perspective. A couple questions on what you just said there. I've never, uh, or comments, I've never actually heard a provider being free before. So that's an interesting take that you guys were able to find a provider in your organization that was a uh, free. And then the, the other concept here is uh, you guys only have three people that kind of manage this environment. How, how, how many devices are in currently in the environment? I mean, we're going to get into uh, the details, I know, but. Yeah, I'm just going to take it. I'm, I'm just thinking off. I'm, I'm visualizing our SNMP maps and I'm just multiplying the rows by the columns now. I'm going to say about 200. Wow, that's a lot of devices for three people to manage. Yeah. So fortunately, you know, one of the big advantages of MPLS is that the only devices that ever change are the ones at the edge, typically. So half of those devices are core devices like P routers or switches that just have Ethernet switching and don't participate in MPLS. Um, and there's a kind of a handful of those in the network. Um, I would say that's probably 30% of the network is devices like that, and the other 70 is PEs. But the other advantage, though, is that the only thing that ever really needs to change of those edge devices is like VLAN assignments, route targets, and maybe some PE to CE routing. So we're really not changing the core infrastructure and the core routing, the core QoS, the core security tools, uh, the management tools. None of that really changes very often. And we, we do right now have a pretty turnkey operation for bringing new POPs online. So that was part of the, you know, as the number of devices grow and the headcount remains fixed, you need to have, a, just like I said, a, a very turnkey solution that's easily repeatable. And I know that lends itself really well to automation. Part of the problem with that is that, quite frankly, I'm not going to lie to anyone here, I'm pretty new to that whole world. I've, I've spent a few months learning Ansible, and we have deployed it in our network with some success. But in terms of uh, completely managing everything and, and provisioning VPNs with Ansible, we're actually moving to that point now, but I don't see that being ready for about six months. So I kind of asked a question that dove down into the, the technical solution. So I guess uh, kind of stepping back, um, what were the technical solutions that were compared throughout this uh, kind of process that you were in? Yeah, so I think I, I, there's there's really two big things in carrier supporting carry that you need to consider. And this this is true for, for even non-carrier supporting carrier environments too, is you have a transport design. How am I doing my core routing between my POPs? And in a non-CSC design, typically it's going to be some kind of IGP, like OSPF or IS to IS, along with uh, LDP, Label Distribution Protocol, maybe traffic engineering tunnels with RSVP or segment routing. You know, you're going to have some kind of core transport. That's going to be part of your design. Then the second part of your design is going to be your services topology, your VPNs, uh, pseudo-wire type stuff, anything that's working at the edge. So one of them is providing core transport between your POPs. The other one is providing services for your customers that make money. And those two, I call I like to call the transport topology and the VPN topology. And we'll talk about those in just a second. But I want to touch real briefly on what the POPs look like. And keep in mind, these, these are brownfield POPs that we can't change. So we have three, five large POPs. And a large POP, you know, quotes around the word large, is two, um, two kind of aggregation routers with eight PEs beneath it. So when you think of a traditional kind of a campus uh, distribution block with access switches, kind of draw that kind of pyramid shape and connect each of the uh, the PEs up to both the aggregation routers. We have five of those throughout the world, five large POPs, and about 20 to 25 small POPs. And a small POP is a single router. That's it. It's a single router. It has some PE interfaces for customers that are nearby and a single uplink to the carrier supporting carrier cloud. The large POPs have two uplinks to the CSE cloud, one, for every, uh, one on every uh, aggregation router. So, again, five big POPs, about 20 to 25 small POPs. So that's the you know that's what that's what we got. It's not like uh, we can't really change a whole lot with those. Um, and another requirement, I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, is that 
given the given the fact that we've already trained some people on what these pops look like, their composition and their operation, we want to try not to change too much in them. Wow. So the P, the PEs have a certain configuration. They have a certain set of route targets. The routing is built a certain way. The VLANs are done a certain way. Let's not change what we don't have to change there. And I think that's a, a general networking uh, best practice kind of tenant. But I want to I want to explicitly say that because it's going to come and influence some of the decisions that we make here in a little while. Now, talking about the transport topology first, again, two topologies, the transport topology, how do our POPs reach each other in the global table, at least their global table, and how do we build VPNs end to end? So first we'll talk about the transport topology. Now again, in a non-CSE network, you typically run IGP in a really large network, maybe you'd have like seamless MPLS or maybe even multiple ASs that you all control. But in this particular environment, our POPs are all small. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we have quote unquote big pops, but I'm sure some of you carrier guys listening are like, no, that's not a big pop. So it's you know, 10 routers in the big pop. Inside that pop, we're running OSPF. And obviously in the small pops, it's one router. There's no IGP. It's not needed. So we have OSPF inside these big pops. The first option for a transport topology, and probably the simplest one from our perspective, is just run OSPF up to the carrier supporting carrier provider. So we have OSPF. If I'm, if I'm sitting on this aggregation router, I have these eight links that go down to my PEs. And then on that other link upstream, I run OSPF on that too. I enable LDP on that. And then the CSC provider edge, which is the uh, router from the core carrier, they would do the same thing. Inside of their VRF, they're providing transport for us as if we were a customer. They would run OSPF and LDP as well. Now, this would be a really rare design, something I've never seen in real life. Effectively, running IGP as a PE2C protocol along with LDP and the core carrier is responsible for the BGP to OSPF redistribution. Definitely a valid design. One of the major advantages of this design is it is so simple for us because all of our interfaces that are MPLS enabled on those aggregation routers are identical. OSPF, LDP, that's it. No redistribution, no BGP labeled unicast, nothing crazy. So that was one option. Problem though, the, this is kind of the hard stop answer is we called up the core carrier and say, hey, can you do this? No. Okay, end, end of discussion. You know, we, there, there were some other trade-offs I, I hope I made them clear about. It's really easy for us to do that. Um, some of the other negatives of that solution, even if they said yes, is things like filtering and aggregation become a little more difficult. For example, uh, you know, if, if the carrier was sending, let, let's say the carrier accidentally uh, configured some wrong route targets and, and it, it, on our VRF imported someone else's routes. Well, we don't want those. We want to, you know, but in, in the case of OSPF, we're kind of stuck with them because they're going to do that redistribution and we lose some control. Effectively, it comes down to we have a simple solution, but the, the trade-off there is control. So we didn't go with that, um, you know, both for the control reason and because we simply couldn't. The next option is introducing BGP. And this was the, uh, these were the options that the, the core carrier supported. So option two is we're going to run BGP labeled unicast. So effectively, I'm going to run eBGP from the CSC customer edge to the CSC provider edge. I'm going to exchange labels, MPLS labels for every route that gets advertised. Now, this the advantage there is I can still have end-to-end -end MPLS transport. It just looks a little bit more like a traditional layer three VPN now. At the, at the CSC customer edge, which is our router, we're going to mutually redistribute from eBGP into OSPF. And we can apply filters at the redistribution point. We can apply filters inbound and outbound on the BGP session, no problem. The advantage of this solution is that we don't have to touch the PEs at all. And that was one of our big business drivers is minimize the changes in the pop. Well, we didn't change any of the OSPF or LDP. We just added BGP on a new link and did redistribution. So none of the PEs changed. They're going to learn all the remote PEs as OSPF external routes. 
with LDP labels, fine, works great. The disadvantage of this solution, my opinion, is uh, it, it's almost kind of a personal opinion, and I don't want to I don't want to stand by it too hard. Is redistribution can be kind of a mess sometimes. You have to be careful not to cause loops, and especially because we're doing redistribution in two places, you need to be careful not to get route feedback. Now, fortunately, um, in some vendor platforms, OSPF external routes aren't included by default when you redistribute into BGP, so there are some fail-safes there. But in general, there was a little bit of risk involved with, with loops, so we needed to take extra care on those aggregation routers not to provide that, uh, not, to, not to have any issues there. Now, on that, that uh, point right there, uh, Nick, um, what would be a solution to mitigate that kind of risk? That's a, that's a good question. So the, the solution, actually, that I did, um, that I thought was easy is, you know, if I've got, you know, routers A and B and router A redistributes from eBGP and there's all these OSPF external routes inside my OSPF area, and it was just area zero, by the way, um, that router B, when he picks it, when he picks up that OSPF external route, number one, he, he shouldn't install it in his routing table, at least on Cisco devices, because that administrative distance of 110 by default is going to be higher than the eBGP route that he learns uh, from the core carrier. But assuming that for whatever reason he installed it in his routing table, the redistribution from OSPF into BGP only matched internal routes. So we were guaranteed that only routes local to the POP would be redistributed up, which ensures that we can't like loop transit kind of between the A and the B uh, stuff. So that was kind of a that, that seemed like kind of a quick uh, an easy way to do it without getting really um, aggressive with prefix lists and things like that because we don't want to have all our POPs with different configs. So it'd be easier if we have something a little more dynamic, like, hey, take the internal routes and redistribute those only. And that seemed to work pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then the final option, um, which in my opinion is kind of like the gold standard option that I would deploy if I had an army of really good engineers, would be instead of doing redistribution at the CSE customer edge, extend labeled unicast from the CSE customer edge down to the PEs. So I'm running eBGP labeled unicast with the core carrier. And then from the next leg down to the PEs, I'm going to run IBGP labeled unicast. And, you know, whether you set the next top self or not, you know, that's a, a minor design detail. We could talk all day about it, but let's just kind of ignore that detail for now. The PEs are going to learn the routes now as IBGP routes, not OSPF external, and they'll have BGP labels. Everything's going to work basically the same way. There's, you know, some minor differences there, but the advantage is there's no, re no redistribution, no possibility of a loop, and only BGP is responsible now for inter-pop transit. So I liked it because I felt like it was kind of a simple answer. Not, I wouldn't say simple. Uh, that would be contradicting. But I felt like it was kind of a clean and nicely separated way to solve this problem. Now, the, the, the solution we actually chose was the second option. Reason mostly was we felt like it was the most straightforward. So if you're an, if you're an operator and you've been working on these PEs for a while, you know how they're configured, and now all of a sudden somebody goes and lays in 100 lines of BGP-labeled unicast, you're like, what is this? I never even heard of that. Um, the people who operate the PEs are, I should say, maybe lower skilled than the people who have the authority to operate the core routers because general operators don't need to go and touch the, the CSE customer edge. It doesn't have VRFs on it. You wouldn't change it on a regular basis. So those people never get exposed to labeled unicast. They don't have to learn it. It's already hard enough for them to learn basic MPLS, route targets, VRFs, and LDP. Let's not introduce more complexity there. So we decided to keep, uh, keep the PEs kind of uh, labeled unicast free, if you will, and perform the redistribution. Um, it was also a little bit easier. It was faster to roll out because now we only have to configure two routers instead of eight. It was a lot faster to verify. Additionally, because, again, having to, you know, we already have OSPF neighbors up. 
So as soon as you do the redistribution, it's going to work. You don't have to troubleshoot, you know, 16 new BGP peers, make sure they all come up um, and things like that. So it overall seemed like it was a kind of the kind of the, the middle ground option. So just to recap, our transport topology now is five large pops that are running OSPF internally. Their uplinks are running BGP, mutual redistribution at the edge. And then all of our remote pops, which are just single routers, are running BGP plus label, BGP labeled unicast effectively up to their CSC customer edge. And because it's just a single router, there's no OSPF there. So I hope everyone has a good visual of kind of where we stand right now with respect to the transport topology. No, that's great, Nick. Thank you. Um, real quick question from my perspective here. Um, for the, the actual provider edge, what's that configured as? Yeah, so the provider edge, yeah, so our provider edge in this case, um, it has those two uplinks to the two CSC customer edge devices. Those are running OSPF in area zero and have LDP configured. So when the CSC customer edge redistributes from BGP labeled unicast into OSPF, it will automatically create LDP labels because I'm now originating this route as an OSPF external route and flooding it into my, in my OSPF domain. That means that I'm responsible for allocating an LDP local label and advertising that down to my LDP peers. So the label, the, the, the label switch path end to end still works. It just happens to be that when traffic gets sent into that CSE customer edge, the topmost label was an LDP label, gets swapped to a BGP label and then gets sent to the core carrier who pushes another label of, of some unknown type uh, for transport across his network. So the important thing about MPLS, I think some people have said, you know, LDP labels and BGP labels are different things. I mean, yeah, they're, they're not really different things. It's still MPLS encapsulation. The only difference is how the, the mechanism by which the label was allocated and advertised. So inside the POP, LDP and um, OSPF, and outside the POP, the inter-AS link, if you will, eBGP labeled unicast, and then redistribution to uh, interwork between them. Moving into the, the VPN options, I guess, at this point, sounds like the good kind of segue, right? Yeah, absolutely. So now, now that we've solved one problem, now we have to look at the next problem, which is the VPN design. So now the only thing we can really do at this point is like ping between our loopbacks and our pops. It's not very exciting. We can't really offer any services yet. The, the transport and the VPN topologies are two independent things. Now, it is true that a bad design decision in one and for example, a bad design decision in the transport topology, let's say a slow converging network, could have a negative effect on the VPN topology, no doubt. But in general, they're two independent things. I could take any of those three options and combine them with any of the three VPN options I'm about to talk about, and it would generally work. So it's important to look at these things in isolation and make sure you test all the different combinations in your head and try to figure out which ones make the most sense for your, for your business. Don't just, you know, even though we're talking about it, uh, in, in series. We're going through it piece by piece. Our decision process was, was a more integrated approach. So let's talk about these three options. So the first option for VPN topology um, was take all the large pops, five of them, take the CSE customer edges in those pops, make them route reflectors for the local pops. So I've got routers A and B, my CSE customer edges, they're going to be route reflectors for their eight PEs and all the pops. And then we're going to fully mesh those routers. So all five of the A routers will fully mesh, all five of the B routers will fully mesh, and those big pops are all going to be fully meshed. So it's only one tier of route reflection with a full mesh effectively across the outsourced CSC core. The small pops, we're going to connect with two IBGP sessions. And again, this IBGP is VPN v4, VPN v6, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're not talking about labeled unicast anymore. This is the services design. Going to uplink through IBGP to the two closest pops. And the word closest, I'm going to put that in quotes for now so I can come back to it. Okay, that was option one. 
advantage of that approach is that we don't have uh, multiple tiers of route reflection, so it's a little bit easier to understand. We can fully mesh the large pops so that there's no, you know, no reliance on one pop that has a second tier of route reflection, so it gives us a little bit of resilience. Uh, the other advantage of that approach is um, the small pops can be regionalized into the, the closest pops, so that might cut down a little bit on the, the BGP advertisement delay. Not that that's a big deal, but you know, those, are, those are kind of the benefits of that one. Uh, the scalability is not bad because the five large pops, there's only ever going to be five large pops. And when we grow to two or 300 pops, they would all be small ones. So it's not really a bit, the full mesh doesn't hurt us in terms of scale. That's option one. Option two was a two-tier route reflector design where the first tier is going to be just like I said before, A and B are going to be route reflectors inside their own pops with eight IBGP VPN V4 sessions down to the PEs. The difference though is that we're going to pick two big pops. To, to be the second tier of route flexion. So those same CSC customer edge devices are going to connect the other three big pops together as well as all the remote sites. So if you're drawing this on paper, you have two big pops at the top of the page with their CSC customer edges. Those four routers are going to be the second tier route reflectors for everyone else, connecting to the first tier route reflectors in the other three large pops as well as all the small pops. Okay, so that was the second design. And this design, uh, it had some interesting challenges from a route reflection design. Specifically, we didn't peer the route reflectors between the two large pops, so the PEs between those couldn't send traffic to each other, and that actually wasn't a problem in our particular design. But ignoring that, this particular design was interesting because it, it lent us to a little bit greater scale. Um, you know, Earlier I said that we weren't expecting any new large pops, but you know, as soon as you say you're not expecting something, that thing happens. So this covered us a little bit in that case, so we didn't have to go in full mesh and touch everything. Um, the other advantage of this is that we didn't have to worry about regionalizing where the, the spokes connected. Um, we just acknowledged that some spokes might be connecting to suboptimal pops, but it really simplified the design because now there's only four route reflectors we have to touch and not ten. The second tier of route reflection gave us, again, a little bit better scale, and we felt like it gave us better manageability since we were centralizing where those changes were. In terms of simplicity, we felt like it was a little bit more complicated, but I think people generally understood that. That's option two. The third option was a two-tier, it was the same kind of idea with a two-tier route reflection design, except we would introduce dedicated routers to be that second tier of route reflection. And in my opinion, this was the, the cleanest Kind of like before, it was the cleanest design, kind of the gold standard, where we can co-locate those routers in two of the large pops, but logically their, their only purpose is going to be second-tier route reflection. So all five of the pops now are peers in terms of the route reflector hierarchy, and I have these two master route reflectors that are going to con connect all the first-tier route reflectors in the large pops. So they're going to have 10 peers, effectively, and then all the remote pops are going to connect directly to them. Now, if there's any PE to PE advertisement issues between the two large pops, there's not any issues with that anymore. Um, to me, it was architecturally the better option. Typically, when you want to add routers to a design, you're doing it for an aggregation purpose, whether that is aggregation of cabling, of routing, or just in this case, of BGP sessions. So of those three options, we actually went with the second one, which was the two-tier route reflection option with shared route reflectors. The reason that we couldn't do the gold standard, some of you might remember, is that we had no money. No capex. We couldn't spend uh, we couldn't spend a couple hundred thousand on some good routers to do that for us. Uh, we also didn't have a virtual infrastructure. There is no virtual infrastructure at all. So it's not like we could buy a software router uh, for low cost. We didn't have the infrastructure to support that. Um, we felt like this was a good option because it scaled well and it helped our manageability. Um, but there was a pretty strong debate between that and the first option about just fully meshing the large pops and um, 
having uh, regionalizing where the small pops go. But part of the issue with regionalizing the small pops is it's re- it, when you do CSC, one of the things you lose is how is the core network performing? Like you don't know. You've outsourced it to someone else. You can't possibly really know um, where the links are congested. What are the, what? How much bandwidth are there between ASs? For example, our core carrier has four ASs in four regions of the world, and we connect to all four. I don't know what the inter-AS bandwidths are that cross the oceans on those links. So if I put a pop in Europe, um, you know, it might make sense to connect it to the you know uh, we have a regional pop in Europe as well, a large pop. So I might connect it to that one. But what about the second one? Should it be in the continental U.S. or should it be uh, in the Middle East or Africa or, or you know, maybe or somewhere else? You know, I don't know which one's the best one. So not that it's that big of a deal, but I'm a big believer in anytime there's an unnecessary decision or an unnecessary conversation, sometimes just removing that from the design is, is a good option. So we felt like option one would kind of confuse what does it mean to be regionalized? Are we going to do it based on lowest latency, highest bandwidth? best SLA availability. We had a hard time agreeing on what the metrics were. So we decided to table it and uh, go with the second option. Okay. So option one, you guys uh, did it because it was maybe a little bit more too complex and people wouldn't understand it. But then, and then option three was your gold standard, right? Um, The two tier hierarchical route reflector design with reusing existing equipment and and buying other equipment too. Um, But you didn't have the the money to support that. And then option two obviously was um, kind of, using route reflect uh, designated route reflectors in the different pops in the two large pops. And then also in the, the um, CSC CE, right? Am I summarizing that appropriately? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much right. So really the only difference between the second and third option was, do we add new routers to be dedicated route reflectors? Or do we try to reuse what we had from the Brownfield? Um, and even though, you know, anytime you try to reuse Brownfield stuff, it usually ends up being a little bit sloppier and a little bit, you know, a little bit, trickier to, to kind of work around but in this case it saved us a bunch of money so that was the solution we decided to use but i think you i think you generally have an understanding okay. yeah. so i mean it, now if you guys were given uh like a kind of a blank check you would have gone with option three right absolutely yeah i think i think we all agreed that that was the the right way to go and, and there's another thing i guess i should mention these large pops are all identical like they are it, when you walk in that you know i'm sure this is true in a lot of regional pops as you walk in and Router one is in this rack slot, and router two is two U beneath it, and and the switch one is right next to that, and and it's all laid out exactly. Every site is exactly the same. So what happens when you take two sites and you slip hardware in that makes them different? That's actually uh, has a a pretty substantial logistical burden, I'll say, in terms of training documentation, because then if people are working in one pop versus the other, it's like, well, hold on, this pop's different than the rest. Well, why is that? Now, obviously, when you take those two pops and you logically make them different, for example, you make them second-tier route reflectors, that's bad, but it doesn't affect the log train. It doesn't affect the hardware installers. It doesn't affect the people who have to spend money. It affects the network people, for sure, because we have to track that the pops are different. Some of them have route reflectors and some don't. But if I'm none the wiser and I walk into all five of those pops, they all look the same. They, they, they feel the same. They taste the same. They cost the same amount of money. And that was kind of a big driver there is, you know, we were willing to deviate on ex- identical designs from a logical perspective because the three of us know it and we understand it and it's documented. But doing it from a logistical perspective, at least in the environment where I work, is is a way bigger headache than it, than it probably needs to be. But that's just kind of a, another consideration to take into account. 
No, it sounds like you guys chose a solution that meets your business requirements. I mean, that's really in, in the core of it all. I mean, um, cost being one of the biggest requirements you have and then keeping things simple um, for the management staff and, and the, the people that are supporting the network, the operations and maintenance people. Um, so real quick, a couple questions I have um, before we kind of move on. Would you guys ever kind of migrate from the option two to the option three if you in, in the future if you were given funding? I think that's actually likely to happen probably sometime next year. And, and part of the reason for that is, uh, I don't think I how to say this intelligently, but there's oftentimes what we do is when we go through a tech refresh or when we go to buy new equipment, the old equipment that we refresh sometimes isn't necessarily even end of life yet, or it's not even really bad, but we just do the tech refresh because just the way money works sometimes, just like in business, you know, hey, we got money, we can spend it now, but if we don't spend it, it's going to get moved to another department kind of thing. So when that happens, we might be able to refresh some of our hardware. Uh, most of the hardware we're running in our pops is, uh, I wouldn't say it's older, but um, there are newer variants of the equipment available. So some of that older equipment that's not really old, we could easily repurpose a lot of that to, to perform some of these functions. We could use some of them as PEs. We could use them, you know, we can use them as additional PEs in the large pop. We can use them as new PEs out in the field. We can use them as route reflectors too. So I think that with our tech refresh, you know, obviously there's a huge capital investment to do a tech refresh on a network like this, probably several million dollars. And if that ever happens, then absolutely, I think we'll we'll uh, we'll be able to uh, to add these route reflectors and probably change our design a little bit. Now, in terms of migration, um, I'll talk about that briefly. The way I would probably do it, and again, I'm I'm thinking off the cuff here, so don't uh, don't flame me if it's wrong. But the, the general idea, yeah, the general idea is, you know, we have two large pops that are second tier route reflectors, and they were strategically placed and uh, many thousands of miles apart, so that a natural disaster or a geographic incident would not isolate both at the same time. What we would probably do is we would take one pop offline and migrate it first, and get everyone on that second tier route reflection to make sure it works. And then we would probably make some BGP best path modifications to ensure that those reflected routes were chosen as best. Now, even though it doesn't really matter a whole lot because the IBGP generally doesn't change next hops, I would probably do that to adjust BGP best path just so all the PEs were selecting the reflected path that came from the new route reflectors just to verify 100% that it worked. So that way when we take down the other legacy site to upgrade it, all the PEs don't have to run best path again all at the same time. They would already have had their best pass from the reflected route that, that they've been using for the past however long it was and we turned them up. And then we would bring up the other site. So it would be, you know, the, the, the advantage of having two different sites that are performing the same functions, you can bring down a whole site for 12 hours, do a major upgrade, probably wouldn't be that long, probably more like one hour, do a major upgrade like this and uh, not tolerate uh, any significant amount of downtime. So I'd probably uh, look at a migration strategy like that. That that migration strategy right there was top notch. I mean, that and you thought of that on the fly, didn't you? That's That's outstanding, man. Thank you. So a couple more questions. You talked about like the best path and everything with um, BGP. Are you guys doing anything with um, ad path, shadow route reflectors? Um, and then a second question, because I uh, figure I'd ask it as well. Um, what are you doing for your route targets, route distinguishers, the design for this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So we, all of our large pops, uh, so our, our, our RD design, without getting too much into the actual digits of the distinguisher, so we follow kind of a standard, you know, the, the first 32 bits, you know, route, route distinguisher, route target 64 bits. You know, the first 32 is typically your AS number, and the last 32 and the last 32 is going to be something else. So what we do is the uh, first 32 bits, we put our, our AS number. And in the last 32, we have a seven-digit number. And of that, you know, some of the digits uh, correspond to a site ID. So all five of the big pops have a site ID. 
Uh, another couple digits correspond to the type of service, layer three VPN, layer two VPN, external customer, internal customer, management, blah, blah, blah. And then there's just some, uh, you know, every one of those has a range of route targets that they can use. Now, the advantage is that generally the RDs are going to be similar to the RTs, except there's obviously less of them. There's only one per VRF as opposed to potentially multiple. But what I'm really getting at is that every VRF in the network has its own unique RD with a few exceptions uh, around the management, which we'll talk about later. But all the customer VRFs have unique RDs. This actually doesn't matter right now for us because we don't have any multi-homed customers from a layer three VPN perspective. All of our customers are single-homed into a single PE. That's a cost uh, consideration to, or a cost uh, restriction, I should say. Um, something, but this is one of those things that we know is going to change in the future. People want resilience. They want backup paths. They might want to do load sharing. Um, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm kind of, uh, let's say I'm in, I'm in Europe and I want to have one connection to the European pop and one to the U S East coast, and maybe I prefer the European pop because it's closer, but I have a, a, a slower backup link through the other one. Um, that, that could be a, a big game changer in terms of availability. So building unique RDs into the solution from the beginning gives us no benefit today, but it sets us up in the future because regardless of the BGP design that we use, it doesn't really matter. We don't have to worry about advanced technologies like additional paths, shadow route reflectors, shadow route reflector sessions, um, or, or any of those things. And I know Mike, you and I have talked about that a lot last year. So we, we understand those technologies quite well. But if you just make the route distinguishers different, then you effectively distinguish the route. I mean, the term is self-evident. If all the routes have different route distinguishers, then the route reflectors who are effectively trying to hide topology by aggregating IPv, uh, excuse me, VPN v4 sessions, they can't run best path on routes with different route distinguishers. So they pass all the routes along, send it to the PE. PE looks at the route target, imports it into the VRF. And once it's in the VRF, it says, oh, I got all these copies of the same route. Let me pick a best path. But the advantage is that the PE has all the routes. And today, they all have the same next stop. So there's not really an advantage. However, in the future, they won't all have the same next stop, and there actually will be an advantage to expose all that information to the PEs. Now, I think some of you might be thinking, what about scalability? Scalability in our terms, it's not so much related to memory and state. Uh, in our whole network, we're probably only going to have thousands of routes total, like you know, four figures, thousands. I don't think we're going to have problems retaining routes, uh, copying paths everywhere. We generally haven't uh, had any kind of issues like that uh, so far. We don't foresee that happening as we grow. Um, scalability is mostly around bringing the pops online. But for those who are thinking about trade-offs, certainly RD solutions like this, you know, every every VRF with a unique RD can really pile up the amount of state that PEs have to retain. But in our particular environment, we're not carrying the entire globing routing global routing table inside of VRF and things like that. So those kind of considerations don't necessarily affect us. Um, so yeah, Mike, just to kind of summarize... We're not using any of the advanced BGP best path uh, uh, prefix independent convergence or pick type features. We're really only doing a unique RD to bring all the state to the PEs. And then in the future, when we start to have multi-honed layer three VPN customers, then we'll look at enabling features like potentially pick to put multiple paths uh, to basically write BGP fast reroute paths. But we haven't quite got to that point yet, but we definitely set the stage for it from the beginning. And I think most people understand the advantages of that. No, that's great. You guys have set it up from the beginning, and we all know how hard it is setting that up or trying to implement that after the fact. So that that's great. Another question. So moving kind of, I think we discussed the transport options, the pros and cons of the three that you had, and then we discussed the VPN options, the pros and cons. Um, let's go into some detail on like the services that you guys offer. Yeah, so there's really two 
Um, two kind of key things, you know, our traditional layer three VPNs, you know, the any to any connectivity. And it's probably worth mentioning here that in our large pops, our PE to CE links are on the order of 250 kilobits per second to about four to eight megs. So very slow by today's standards. Not a lot of uh, bandwidth. Not a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. So when we talk about, um, you know, this, that's more of, that's got, that comment's a little more relevant for QoS. But the reason I bring that up is those PE to CE links, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, I, I, at least people I know, they're like, well, why would you do layer three VPNs? We got eVPN. We can, we can scale layer two VPNs as good as layer three VPNs nowadays. I say, well, hold on, because the key word in eVPN is Ethernet. And it only works if you have Ethernet PE to CE. And I realize that in the commercial space, that's a, that's a pretty fair assumption, but not for us. Because in our case, that PE to CE link, not only is it extremely slow, but it's, it's a tunnel. It's a GRE tunnel. Um, so when, you, when your PE to CE link is a GRE tunnel, you know, you can't, it, it's a little more difficult to, to map that into a multi-point layer 2 VPN instance. So layer 3 VPN is actually really valuable for us because we don't have a lot of Ethernet uh, PE to CE. So what we'll do is we'll take a customer that's shooting in on a GRE tunnel into one of our large pops, and we might put a small pop in, um, you know, in that company's headquarters or in another part of the world that they need to connect to. And then that, that end of the link will be just a Cat5 cable, sure, but the other end is a GRE tunnel. The nice thing about Layer 3 VPNs is that they're media independent. So I don't have to worry about having the same type. I don't have to worry about any fancy interworking options like you do for Layer 2 VPNs. Um, so we offer kind of point-to-point, multi-point uh, Layer 3 VPNs uh, between any pops. And then for Layer 2 VPNs, we only offer point-to-point because there, are no, there aren't any business drivers for multi-point Layer 2 VPNs today, thankfully. So no, uh, no crazy VPLS or anything like that. We just have, uh, you know, on our, some of them Ethernet, uh, point-to-point stuff. Um, we allow any kind of flexible VLAN tag matching. We, we've done some pretty creative things with that. Generally, the use case there is if a unit... Uh, or, or a customer or you know, a tenant has you know, a connectivity on Ethernet between two POPs and they have some specific reason why they need them to be layer two adjacent. And there have been a couple use cases that are probably hard to describe in, a, in an open setting. So I'll just leave it as if there's a unique requirement where customers need that layer two connectivity between sites, we can offer it on a point-to-point basis on Ethernet links only. Um, so that's just, you know, those are kind of basic services that we offer. It's not nothing really earth-shattering. Again, it's just MPLS VPNs. But the big advantage is that you only have to configure the nodes at the edge. You're guaranteed multi-tenancy, and you're guaranteed reliable transport over CSC. So the services themselves aren't super exciting, but the design that goes into being able to provide those services in a simple, scalable, secure way that's low-cost and manageable, I think, is where the real challenge comes in. Yeah, no, that was outstanding. Again, kind of my mind's a little blown here. So we mentioned IPv4. Uh, are you doing any IPv6 and multicast services? Yeah, those are those are two really interesting questions. So I'll start with the V6 one. Everywhere we have, I, I excuse me, everywhere we have VPN v4 enabled, we also have VPN v6 enabled. So the exact same VPN topology from a BGP perspective is the same for VPN v6 and VPN v4, and we also have IPv4 MDT enabled. So all those things follow the same topology, those three address families. Okay, cool. Same route reflectors, all that. For IPv6, we don't have any traditional IPv6 transport. For example, there's no customer said, I need IPv6 transport from site A to site B, and here's a bunch of IPv6 prefixes, transport them for me. That's never happened. However, we do have a lot of customers that are using OSPF v3 for PE to CE, 
with us. So on that GRE tunnel we talked about earlier, they're going to run OSPFB3 on that, and then we're going to be the ones responsible for doing the redistribution and all that. But the interesting thing is some of these sites have backdoor links between them. So some, some people are kind of like, ah, I can tell, you know, people who have worked with OSPF and an MPLS Layer 3 VPN uh, with backdoor links, they kind of know where I'm going here, but I'll, I'll paint the picture for, for other people who may not be familiar. Suppose I have um, two sites that are shooting into uh, two different POPs. Let's say I have a customer, you know, it's, it's the same customer. So customer A, site one, shooting into POP one. Customer A, site two, shooting into POP two. Those two POPs are connected over carrier-supporting carrier. Inside that GRE tunnel, which is their last mile kind of connectivity, they're running OSPF v3, and we're doing redistribution for it. That's going to work just fine over CSC. Now, what happens when those two units go out on their own and they get a, a layer two connectivity between those two routers that they have? So now it's like a big, giant square kind of thing. Problem, though, is without getting too much into the OSPF details with MPLS, is that backdoor link is always going to be preferred by default. And that's really just the way the OSPF pack selection works with intra-area or external routes, or excuse me, intra-area being preferred over inter-area or external routes. So no matter what you do with cost, that's always going to happen. So the answer to this is do basically a sham link. So, and yes, you can do a sham link across CSC. There's no limitation there. Remember, CSC is just outsourced MPLS transport. It's nothing fancy. So between those two PEs and our POPs that are connected to those two customer sites, we build a sham link. However, OSPF v3 only uses IPv6 for all of its uh, control plane transport. So even though these customers are only using OSPF v3 with IPv4 address family, and the reason for that is twofold. Number one is for IPsec uh, security for the routing protocol, and number two is because um, of the new Type 9 LSA for intra-area prefixes. So you get better, you know, so when you add a loopback, it doesn't cause a full SPF inside your area. So there's a couple of reasons that you would want to deploy it. These customers are using it. But what you need to do in order to make that work is you need to, just like you're doing a sham link, you need to go on those loopback, or excuse me, go on those PEs, create a loopback, add an IPv6 address, pull that into BGP, and then build the sham link between the v6 addresses. Because remember, OSPFV3 only uses IPv6 force control plane stuff, including sham links and virtual links and all that other stuff. So VPN v6, we're not using it for customer stuff, but we need it to support the customer control plane so that it can run IPv4. So it's a little bit of an interesting use case for VPN v6. But the advantage of having deployed it everywhere, I mean, number one, obviously, we can support our customers right away. But number two, what happens when someone says they actually want IPv6? Well, it's easy. We already can support it. We have it everywhere. We have v4. We can support any either of the address families anywhere in equal uh, with, with equal uh, coverage. Now, you have the flexibility to support it day one, right? But when you say yeah. sham links, I'm, I'm cringing inside, right? So running sham links. And then um, question, though, on the, the IPv6 side of that, uh, how long did it take you guys to figure that out? Was that something you learned in the past, or was it this kind of design and this implementation something you had to learn? It, it was more of something I had to learn now. It's, it's not something you typically think about, but it, it was more of like, a, you know, you're setting it up for the first time, and you're kind of question marking through it on the command line, and you see that you don't have a choice. And you're like, well, I wonder why that is. And, and within about five seconds, it dawns on you, like, yes, of course, I can't use IPv4 for this. Um, and, and then you, and then it starts to make a little bit more sense. And again, you know, nobody likes uh, nobody likes sham links, but at the same time, you th think about it. You know, I, I try to take a step back and think about it from the customer's perspective. They're running OSPF on all their links, including the ones to us. That's really easy for them. They don't even have to think about it. They just adjust cost, and it works. This is the same argument that I made 20 minutes ago about us running OSPFB2 and LDP with our core carrier because it's nice and easy for us, but it's hard for them. 
So it's, it's the same, it's the same kind of mindset of, you know, now that we're the provider, we hate it because it hurts us, but when we're the customer, we love it because it makes our life easier. So you just have to kind of make sure you're looking at both sides of the table when you, when you design these networks and always think twice before you say yes. And always think twice before you say no, before, um, you know, before answering, can you support this? So I know we touched IPv4 and IPv6. Um, are you guys running a, a multicast? Any of those profiles? There's a ton of them. Yeah. So the thing about multicast that's interesting is initially we didn't plan on having multicast across the CSC network because our core carrier was not ready to actually support it. However, we've designed it to where we want that multicast to already be ready to go. So we have rolled out uh, multicast IPv4 MDT, which is kind of the, the draft Rosen original multicast VPN transport. Uh, Cisco calls it profile zero, but it's, it's effectively uh, GRE encapsulation, PIM overlay signaling between them, PIM signaling in the core, and a specific address family that allows sources and groups to be – basically source addresses to be exchanged between PEs so that PIM SSM can be used in the core. It's a, it's a pretty strong design, to be honest. So we have this everywhere. We're, we're, the reason we deployed it is because everyone knows it, and it's simple, and it's tried and true. But there's a migration path we want to take. The, 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 the main limitation with the MDT address family is that all it can do is carry sources and groups. And if all you're carrying is S's and G's, that means you can only ever use IP encapsulation. So how are you going to do label switch multicast when all you can carry is IP sources and IP groups? That doesn't really work kind of long term. So what we're looking to do is we're looking to first migrate from profile zero to three. And profile three is the same kind of idea with uh, PIM in the core, PIM in the overlay, you know, I, I, you know, PIM, SSM in the core, PIM, it, PIM in the overlay for our customers, uh, GRE encapsulation. But the difference is the BGP address family will change from MDT to MVPN, multicast VPN. And there's an IPv4 and IPv6 version. We'd run both. The advantage of this is that there's uh, some new attributes in the message. And again, this gets extremely technical, so I'm not going to get too much into it. But there's a provider multicast service interface or service instance. I forget exactly. It's a PMSI. And effectively, it contains information about what is the tunnel type. Is it a multicast LDP, multipoint to multipoint tree, or a point to multipoint tree, or ingress replication with MPLS encapsulation, or RSVP point to multipoint TE tunnel, or maybe it's a PIM, a, a classic PIM encapsulation, or excuse me, a GRE encapsulation using PIM, ASM, SSM, or bidirectional mode. All those options are supported now, and BGP can help signal those things. So profile three and profile zero are effectively the same. The only difference is that we've modernized the BGP control plane. So why would we even waste our time doing that? Remember what I said is that CSC doesn't support multicast today. And when they do, this is new information, so you won't remember this part, but when they do, it will only be available in continental United States at first. Okay, so inter-region is much more difficult for the core carrier, and they've told me that. So they're like, hey, we can give it to you in the U.S. And I said, well, that's okay, because now how can I get multicast to the other regions? And you might be thinking, oh, I'll just do GRE tunnels between the pops. Yes, that would work. But who wants to go and ruin our BGP design with a bunch of MVPN? Or static M routes and a bunch of other stuff. None, none of us really wanted to do that. We try to we try to avoid abusing GRE. I mean, what's the point in building a big global MPLS network that scales and is nice and clean if you're just going to, quite frankly, pollute it with GRE tunnels to work around your problems? But having modernized the multicast VPN control plane, what we can do now is we can use profiles like ingress replication. Now, of course, there was a requirement earlier for high bandwidth multicast flows. 
not all our flows are high bandwidth. Some of them are low bandwidth. So for some of our inter-region, we could tell our customers, look, we can give you high bandwidth flows within the U.S., but we can only give you low bandwidth multicast. For example, maybe an application discovery that uses ASM just to discover endpoints instead of DNS, low bandwidth, stuff like that. We can give you that anywhere in the world. And we can do that now that we've modernized the control plane. We can do, I believe it's Profile 21, which uses ingress replication, BGP for discovery, BGP for uh, multicast signaling. Ingress replication, for those who don't know, it means a packet comes in and Using MPLS encapsulation, we're just going to reuse the unicast LSP to reach all the egress PEs. So it's obviously wasteful on bandwidth. It's similar to VPLS, the way VPLS handles multicast traffic. But guess what? It doesn't require anything. The core carrier, it just looks like unicast to him. It's just replicated multiple times. So again, having modernized that BGP control plane to multicast VPN, we can transport multicast using ingress replication across a unicast-only MPLS network to deliver multicast to our customers. So I think that's way better option, in my opinion, than using GRE tunnels everywhere. Again, because how long does it take to set up a GRE tunnel, adjust multicast BGP for RPF, or set up static M routes, and then verify that it worked? It's way harder than just, again, route target type mentality of, of VPN membership for multicast. So that's kind of our strategy on multicast. I realize it's, it's kind of advanced and it's kind of new, and I admit it'll be the very first next-gen multicast deployment that I do, but I'm pretty confident it's gonna work. No, it sounds like it's a great solution. I can only—I remember the days of building GRE tunnels and, and trying to do uh, static M routes and, and you know worrying about RPF checks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I definitely feel for the the GRE static kind of way of doing multicast to the service provider core. So this this sounds like a great opportunity to do something next gen for multicast here. Yeah, absolutely is. Um, so one kind of uh, topic we haven't discussed yet was really—I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, but I mean, really security. Are there any things you guys have done specifically for security services or anything like that? Yeah, so one of the one of the big one of the big security decisions that we made early on was, you know, there's a habit in in the federal government environment is that the best way to do security is just to carpet bomb firewalls and IPSs everywhere. And I, I've I've always disagreed strongly with that approach. I felt like it was really naive and it doesn't it doesn't really address the problems that we have. It's it's kind of akin to saying, I'm gonna put 10 doors in front of you and I'm gonna lock all of them. And they all have the same lock. <laughs> and all you need to do is get the key once. you know. And that's kind of been our attitude for a long time. And I, I felt that it's very ineffective. So my strategy here um, was let's create a management VPN for ourselves. So we're going to put a small pop at our knock. And off that knock, we're going to have a tenant. And it's going to say VRF management. And in that management VRF, we're going to export a route target that all of our other pops are going to import. So for example, uh, I'll export one colon one and all the remote pops will import one colon one. So now, great, all those remote pops have a route back to the knock. Now, vice versa, all those small pops are gonna export two colon two and the knock's gonna import it. And by doing the route targets in this way, we've created a hubspoke network. So why did I create a hubspoke network instead of any to any? Under what circumstances would one pop need to manage another pop? Never. So if a pop becomes compromised or someone breaks in through the door and, and plugs into the console, they can't, they can't hop to another pop. They need to try to attack the knock at that point, which has some additional security. So the advantage of that approach is imagine a hub-spoke environment where there's no spoke-to-spoke -spoke communication. If I had 200 sites and so suppose I had 200 pops and two knocks, where do I have to put the firewalls now? They only need to go with the knock. Now I only have two firewalls and not 200. So the advantage there is if, if I'm at a spoke and the only place I can go, assuming I've compromised the management network, is through the knock, why don't I put the firewalls there? 
centralizes my policy and it just simplifies things in general. So that was the first thing we did. That's a cost we'll building too, right? Doesn't yeah, it cost barely anything. Yeah, we had enough. We had a couple firewalls sitting in a warehouse that we were able to do this without spending any money. So this was another solution, you know, another cost-driven solution really, um, and it also provided security. We felt the other advantage of this is that our VPN, so the VPNs that we as a provider give to our customers, our our core carrier has no idea what that is. I mean, of course they can sniff our traffic, but in general, we're not exchanging VPNs or route targets with our core carrier. They're just transport only. So. In their core network and in their NOC, they'll never have routes for our NOC. I mean, they can sniff it and they might be able to do some label spoofing, but in general, they're not going to have routes for our NOC. So if our core carrier gets compromised or if they do some uh, you know, shenanigans, they're not going to be able to reach inside. And it's, it's nice because they can reach our global network. Obviously, they're providing routing for our global transport. So they can ping our loopback zeros you know, in the global table, but they can't ping our loopback ones that aren't in the global table, for example. And, that, and that's an advantage because we can kind of keep all that abstracted out. And then this, is, this is a tool of using routing abstraction to provide security uh, almost through obscurity. And again, I know some people are like, well, you, know, you can break through that. Of course you can. You can break through anything. But we're, we're really minimizing the attack surface here by not allowing the core carrier to have routing in this management VPN. And of course, we don't import those route targets in any of our customer VPNs, so none of our customers will ever have access to our knocks. And again, because our customers are encapsulated inside MPLS tunnels or, or tunneling, however you want to classify it, they can't attack our core, they can't attack the core carrier, they can't attack our knock. And vice versa, if our knock gets compromised, we can't attack our customers. So we've got this really good kind of compartmentalization at the network layer that allows our management to stay completely separate from everything else. Um, now, unfortunately, we don't have the cost to do a true out-of-band network. So you think about what makes a good out-of-band network. You know, if our if our CSC uplinks fail, we should have some way to manage our pops. Well, guess what? Today we don't. That's a cost thing. Um, getting you know LTE is a there's some security issues with that. So we can't we can't do an LTE solution. We're kind of struggling through some PSTN based solutions right now. So we don't really have a true out-of-band management because we can't afford it. But that doesn't mean you can't just. That doesn't mean you just have to give up and just have a bad management solution. We can still take a lot of the tenets of a good out-of-band management solution, like separation and and things like that, and try to separate as much as possible to still offer something that's pretty good. And that's generally what we did, and that's it's worked quite well for us. So I've heard uh, and I've seen some of um, the people I've dealt with in the past with uh, MPLS networks having a dedicated like VRF for management. Obviously, this is really the the first production um, deployment of uh, carrier supporting carrier that I've actually talked about with you specifically. And to see how you use it in this this kind of way is outstanding in my mind. I mean, you know, everyone in security has their views that you need firewalls everywhere, and if you're not inspecting the packets, you're not secure and so forth. But um, if you can't route to the destination, I mean, that's that's the beginning of everything right routing is number one yeah uh, yeah that was my idea for sure yeah um the last question i kind of have is uh and we really didn't talk about it i don't think and i don't know but um internet services do you, do you offer any internet services through the the kind of csc deployment you have generally not um we we do have a couple internet uh connectivity points but it's it's really only internet for transport so you can kind of imagine a, imagine a pe at the end of the network and the internet is connected directly to it, and that's inside of a VRF. But instead of learning the full internet table or a default route and putting a route target on it and pumping it into the network, we actually just term it, you know, it just stops right there. And basically that PE interface that connects to the internet that has a public IP, that's effectively a landing point for customers that are doing IPsec VPNs over internet. So they can land those tunnels on our PE, and then the 
inside VRF on those tunnels is what gets mapped into a route target and gets sent into the network. So basically, it's just internet as transport, no internet access services. So hopefully that makes sense. So we do have that in a few points. Um, and I'll talk just a little bit uh, about that. I guess I'll talk about it now since we're since we're on the topic. Yeah. Is this is this is where we found Ansible to be of a lot of use, and it's, it's not just Ansible, it's just automation tool in general. But Ansible is what we used. Is when that when that tunnel comes in from the internet. So we have an internet router, and then in between that we have a firewall that screens connections, and then we have a RPE. So what we do is we know that all all of our customers who use internet, they they all come through a, a CGN, a carrier grade NAT or a large scale NAT. It's basically a device that takes a whole kind of uh, region of, of, of addresses and, and does, performs a network address translation on the source to a public address. And these devices, I just happen to know that they go through NAT multiple times. Um, but by the time it gets to, by the time we see the source address, there are only 29 total public addresses that can possibly come into our network. So you might think, well, that's cool. I'll go on the firewall. I'll permit those 29 addresses, and I'll go on the router, and I'll give him a default route to the internet. I say, well, let's clean that up a little bit. So step one, why do you need a default route to the internet when you know there's only 29 endpoints that you would ever need to reach? And remember, all we're doing is building IPsec tunnels from our router to someone's remote router. So we don't need to learn all his overlay routes. We just need the tunnel endpoints. And again, because we're traversing NAT, it's going to be NAT traversal for IPsec, so we only need to know the CGN addresses uh, from the perspective of the underlay routing. So you might say, okay, I'll replace that default route with 29 host routes. That's a major security improvement. And it is because now if an attacker tries to send, uh, tries to screen your router or let's say he breaks through the firewall somehow or somebody bypasses it, tries to attack your router, chances are your router can't reply unless they've spoofed one of those 29 addresses. So that's one improvement. Um, what we use the Ansible to do is basically enumerate the list of all 29 of these CGNs and say, I'm going to say, you know, CGN number one, uh, you know, basically name CGN one, IP, uh, whatever, 10.0.0.1. Obviously, it'd be a public address, but I'm just making that up. And then the state could be enabled or disabled. If you say disabled, the route will be removed from the configuration. So Ansible will go in and remove the static route for that CGN. But if you say enabled, it will add the route. So now I have flexibility on which CGNs are allowed. If I know that you're operating in a certain part of the world or, um, you're doing something somewhere, I can add those to the to the script. I can basically go into my YAML file in Ansible and say, yep, state enables for this one and this one and this one, and I can run it, and then Ansible will go out to all my internet edge devices and configure those static routes with the proper next tops, the proper underlay VRFs, the proper names, the proper net masks, and we'll also go into the firewalls and add the proper IP addresses to the whitelist to allow those NAT-T IPsec connections to come in. So I went from having a default route to having 29 static routes, to having some number between zero and 29 routes based on the specific task and based on who's actually doing IPsec tunnels into our POPs. So it's an extremely secure VPN um, from that perspective because we have, you know, we have data plane security from a firewall screening. We have routing isolation um, by VRFs to pr protect the MPLS core. We also have a minimal uh, underlay routing strategy that's controlled with an automation tool. So we can very rapidly bring up or turn off some of these links just by adding and removing some static routes. And I felt like that was a really good use case for using, an, uh, using a modern automation tool to adjust routing with the ultimate goal of enhancing security. So it's a really good kind of, uh, I don't want to say orchestration, it's kind of a buzzword, but it's a really good way to, to orchestrate or mix different uh, technologies together to provide a result that you generally wouldn't think to do.
I had one technical question on that. So on the inside of the, the firewalls, are you doing like um, VRF light to go into like a, a almost like a PE or are you terminating the, the MPLS network directly into your, like your firewall somehow? Yeah. So the firewall, I should clarify the firewall in this particular instance is a layer two firewall. So there's a, there's a, a, a subnet basically from RPE device to the internet edge router. And then in between that is a transparent firewall. And all that guy does is say, if you're not on the whitelist, you get dropped. Um, so his, his job is actually more like a, more like a, a fancy access list, but we have a firewall there cause it makes people feel better quite frankly, but that's what his job is. Um, that tunnel lands at the PE, so its underlay is, you know, land, its tunnel endpoint is at that PE device, but then inside the tunnel is what gets mapped to the VRF. So the MPLS doesn't extend past that PE. That that internet edge router is kind of like a CE in a sense, and there's a, a PE to CE firewall, if you will. Maybe that clarifies a little bit. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Do you have anything else for this, this kind of solution? Any other kind of last-minute uh, discussion points? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk just briefly about QoS because I feel like you know QoS and MPLS networks sometimes gets kind of hand wave. Oh, it's just like regular QoS except you got EXP values and it. Well, yeah, not really because the thing about MPLS is that you're constantly adding, removing, and changing encapsulation. So with IP networks, um, you know, in the you know, assuming you're not doing a lot of tunneling, you may set the you may set the QoS markings once at the edge and then perform queuing, shaping, etc., drop actions in the core, and that's great. In our particular case, though. The DSCP markings that our customers use, so like that OSPFE3 customer and those guys, the stuff that they use is completely non-standard, locally significant DSCP markings that don't really translate well into MPLS by default. When I say by default is when an IP packet comes into an MPLS PE and we need to add MPLS encapsulation to it, we copy the first three bits of the DSCP into the MPLS EXP value by default. So that could be any, it could be any crazy number that these customers are using. So what we do is we kind of, Look at what our customers are doing, and a lot of them use a common policy, even though it's uh, not common with anything else in real life. They're all common amongst themselves. So we say we take this policy, we say, hey, match DSCP one two three, and set this MPLS value on imposition. And we do that. And there's five classes that our customers can use. Uh, you know, a couple voice queues, some TCP and UDP data. Best effort basically is what they are. Uh, in our core, we have six queues. Uh, the five I just mentioned, plus one for net control. Which brings me to the point of, you know, when customers send us traffic marked with CS6, the last thing we want to do is add MPLS EXP6 to it because that's what we use in our core for our signaling. So when a customer sends us uh, CS6, some people might say, well, your customer shouldn't be sending you CS6 and you need to change your SLA to make them change it. And I, I don't personally agree with that. I think there's other solutions. I, I, I don't like the idea of telling your customers exactly what DSCP values have to be used. I understand there are a lot of cases for that. Because it simplifies QoS for carriers. You know, for example, if a customer performs remarking on their CE to change their internal markings to the markings that you want, then automatically your EXPs get sorted out. But in our case, we do a manual mapping. So when EXP6 comes in, or sorry, when CS6 comes in on an IP packet, we actually push EXP2. And that goes in basically to a priority data type queue uh, with the rest of the customer's premium business data. So we transport their signaling with some level of importance, but we certainly don't let it compete with ours. And it's interesting because the core carrier does the exact same thing. When we send him our IBGP traffic that goes between our POPs, that's going to be marked with EXP6, he leaves EXP6 intact for us and pushes EXP2. Because he wants to give us a little bit of treatment on it, but he certainly doesn't want to uh, have our IBGP compete with his IBGP. Nobody would want that. Um, the carrier uses a the core carrier uses a a long pipe model, 
which I thought was kind of interesting. So basically, when traffic gets to their penultimate hop, instead of popping that last label, they retain it and use some kind of implicit null, basically carrying uh, their QoS marking to the egress PE. So rather than that egress PE trying to do egress queuing based on my EXP6, they're going to do it on the core carrier's EXP2 to provide the proper QoS outbound. But the nice thing is when I get my MPLS packet back, it's going to have EXP6 on top. And guess what? Nobody did any remarking anywhere. All we did was we told our routers, when you add MPLS encapsulation, just add the right value. Because every time you add encapsulation, only the topmost value matters. So why change all the other stuff? Just leave it. Now everyone's happy because our customers never had the DSCP changed. The customer carrier, which is us, we never had our EXPs changed. And the core carrier is happy because they can just map QoS at the edge and do whatever they need to do in the core. So overall, all three people walked away with a good a good win in this situation, mostly because there wasn't a whole lot of uh, strictness on what markings you have to send. You know, our core carrier doesn't send what mark doesn't care what EXPs you send him because if you send him something he doesn't like, he'll just push something else on top. But he will never change your markings, which is awesome. Um, we have a short pipe model. The reason we do a short pipe model is we like to do egress queuing based on what the customer's markings are because we have a common queuing policy for all of our customers and they, um, because they all have a pretty common policy, again, not common for real life, but common amongst themselves. We have this egress queuing policy that uses their DSCP markings on egress for queuing rather than our EXP markings. It gives them a little more flexibility and it's more consistent with their existing uh, network baselines. So just to show you a couple different QoS models in play, you know, our core carry uses a long pipe model, and I, I kind of verified that with them, or at least to talking with them, that sounds like what they did. Um, and we use the short pipe model. But in both cases, they're both variants of the pipe model, which means we're not changing the, the values. For our core, we kept it really simple. All we really did was divide core bandwidth. Um, and again, you think of our core, it's extremely small. There's a, a link from a PE to a, a CSC customer edge, and that goes right out to the core carrier. And our small pops, it's even smaller. It's just one uplink. Um, on those uplinks, we do some shaping just based on the rates that we get from the from the core carrier. But in general, very, very simple queuing policy. And uh, it's mostly in line with our logic that if we're going to build this network, we need to keep all the complexity at the edge. And even then, we want it to be minimal. So changes to QoS are extremely rare. We typically never do that. And it's not part of our operational model. Mostly just limited to things like route target, import, export, maybe pseudo wires once in a while. Um, hopefully that clarifies some things. No, that, that, again, that's great. Um, I so just to make sure, so that means that no one in the environment's remarking the QoS values, right? Yeah, that's generally true. There are, there, are, there are some very corner cases where we have to do it. Um, I won't get into those now, but in ninety nine percent of the cases, there is no remarking. So, customer, you can send us whatever DSCP you want. If it doesn't match our mapping policy, we're just going to push EXP zero on it, which is fine. We're not, but we're not going to change your markings, and we're, we don't demand that you do. Because sometimes that can, that can, you know, as you know, when you go from a, an 8Q model at once uh, at your CE to a 4Q model in the core, you compress all that traffic. But then when it comes out the other end, how do you differentiate it? Well, now you have to reclassify it on ingress from the carrier. And that can, that can become overly burdensome for the customers. But all the carrier had to do was tunnel your markings in MPLS. So my logic is I would... At this point, I could either push a pretty sizable burden onto our customers or take a relatively small burden on ourselves. And I thought that was a pretty obvious choice, and it's worked pretty well for us so far. No, it sounds like it's the right business decision. Again, you're trying to make things simple for, for your customers, right? I mean, that simple and, and efficient and also easy to manage. So, Yeah, and, the, and I think the other thing there is, um, you know, when, when people in general, when networks perform poorly, 
you know, everyone has their usual suspects. Like the first step one is blame the firewall. Step two is, you know, blame, uh, you know, blame the congestion in the network or blame the carrier or blame the WAN or something like that. And what we notice in our environment a lot because our links were so slow. Remember, some of those P to C links are 256K to 48 megs or something. Um, QS gets blamed a lot um, because QS and typically when you put QS in a network, you do it to resolve and prioritize traffic during temporary bouts of congestion. Like if you have nonstop congestion all the time, QS really isn't the answer. More bandwidth is the answer or a different network design. But in our case, QS is really the only answer. And we acknowledge that it's a really not a great use case for QS since we're just generally acknowledging that we starve other traffic. So what I'm really getting at here is if we required our customers to do all this complicated remarketing and it didn't work and they had bad performance, what, what will inevitably happen next is a, a massive round of finger pointing, which is you configured it wrong. No, I didn't. The QoS doesn't work. Yes, it does. Um, you know, I've personally witnessed that for years working in, in the space that I do. And I said, you know what? Let's not go down that road. Let's just come up with an MPLS-based solution that allows us to tunnel customer QoS markings, their DSCP markings inside IP. We're already tunneling inside MPLS. Let's just use the MPLS QoS for our internal stuff and leave the customers alone. And that, that looked like it was the winning option. Yeah, no, totally. So, I mean, just to kind of summarize what we've gone through the last uh, a little over an hour here, an hour and 20 minutes or so, um, we really talked about a lot today, Nick. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the title or the, the premise is Care Supporting Carrier here, but we really went down a really technical driven path between the different options on Care Supporting Carrier and what you chose and what you deployed. Uh, we also talked about um, even automation and i know you didn't want to use the term orchestration but uh, automation orchestration with ansible um and we talked about security we talked about uh, a lot of different technical aspects of what what you did and and at the end of it all my view is that we really talked about the business requirements the business drivers and the business constraints of why you did what you did and that's what really matters do you have any last minute words of advice for our listeners yeah i just i guess my last uh, 30 second comment would just be um you know, when when other people out there, you've learned about carrier supporting carrier and you've looked at the use cases and you've seen the diagrams and maybe you thought it was complicated and, it, and maybe it is when you're first learning it and going through it. I know it was for me. I would just say, you know, don't don't pigeonhole yourself into thinking that this is only a, a service provider type technology. I don't actually work at a service provider. You know, my customer is really kind of a kind of a hybrid large enterprise type thing. But, you know, secure multi-tenancy over WAN, scalability, simplicity, vendor agnosticness. You know, those are all things that CSC can help solve. So don't uh, don't discredit these kinds of solutions just because they're different or, or seemingly awkward because there are some really great use cases that you can use uh, care supporting carrier and things like it to solve. So I would just kind of uh, tell everyone out there and, and Mike, you'll probably uh, you'll probably chuckle at this comment, but you got to dump your your preconceived notions about what you think about care supporting carrier or MPLS technologies in general because they can really uh, they can really change the way your network operates and, and bring some value to your customers. So I would just implore you to to consider those kinds of things before quickly jumping down uh, you know your favorite your favorite vendor's product. Yeah, you really have to have an open mind. I mean, that, that's you have a ton of tools in the tool chest or the toolbox, and you know, carrier supporting carrier is one of those tools. Um, and, and knowing that it solves your business requirements and business needs could be a, a great benefit. So, well, Nick, um, I, I really appreciate your time tonight. Um, it, it, I think it's been a great discussion. Um, where, where can the followers, where can the subscribers uh, um, follow you and reach out to you if they want? Yep. You can uh, find me on Twitter at Nick Russo 42518 
or uh, I have a really uh, pretty lame website. It's njrusmc.net. I got some free stuff on there, uh, wireless stuff and some white papers. You guys can check it out. Uh, and you can uh, hit me on LinkedIn as well, uh, Nick Russo, and you'll see my uh, smiling face if you just search for that. You also are uh, an author, right? So. Yeah, so I wrote, I mean, the uh, the first and, and free book that most people I would encourage to take a look at is a Cisco Evolving Technologies thing. It's about 70 pages. I wrote it really to plug a market gap in um, in what I felt was not a lot of, not a really good consolidated booklet on evolving technologies. And I did that uh, partially, partially, you know, partially to be selfish because I needed to uh, recertify my CCIEs, um, but also because I felt like it would be a good opportunity to get myself in front of the community in a positive way. Um, and that's free, and you can find that on CLN. Just search for Evolving Technologies in, in Google, um, and, you know, and you'll probably find that. I would encourage everyone to read it. I actually just posted a new version uh, yesterday, June 10th, 2017, so have a look. And uh, then I also wrote another uh, much longer, much more uh, difficult book, uh, almost 3,000 pages on uh, uh, a specific CCIE exam. But I think there's a lot of applicability just in the general service provider space where it goes in, in great detail about everything we talked about today and a lot of other service provider technologies. And that's uh, posted on LeanPub. So I would uh, encourage people who are interested maybe in this conversation or, or want to see some of my future writing, please, uh, please check that out. And if there are any questions, uh, reach out to me and I'm happy to have a discussion. Outstanding, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, Ziglets, that's going to close out this episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast on Carrier Supporting Carrier with Nick Russo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access the show notes. If you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let us know. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching for Zigbits. That's Z-I-G. B-I-T-S. You can also send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide real-world context around technology.